This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So a few years ago, I gave a talk at, at a conference at Harvard, and it, it was, um, this is the poster from the conference, Editorial Aspirations. Um, human hands, what Aristotle called the tool of tools, the symbol of our distinctive body form and our u unique capacities of mind, our comprehension, our creativity, and our control over the world in which we dwell. And nowhere are these powers more dramatic than in our recent advances in genetic editing. Those hands are turning now to operate on our very selves. We're in an amazing moment in human history. Seventy years ago, Aldous Huxley anticipating, oh, thanks, anticipating the transformation of human life through advances in biology as the final and most searching revolution asserted this really revolutionary revolution is to take place not in the external world, but in the souls and flesh of human beings. In the decades since the first publication of Brave New World, Amid the accelerating pace of discovery in genetics, developmental biology, and the laboratory production of life, there's been an increasing appreciation of Huxley's prescient concerns. Yet throughout this period, limitations in the tools and techniques for specific and efficient modification in genomes have been a major constraining factor for advances in general biotechnology. In other words, it was the kind of bottleneck. Uh, now, however, with CRISPR-Cas9 and related, um, and related technologies, MIT Tech Review calls this the biggest biotech discovery in the century. So we've got now a tool that is highly precise in its genetic alterations deletions, insertions, and manipulations of genomic processes across the full spectrum of living beings. This holds great promise for advances in agricultural, animal studies, and biomedical research. Um, but it opens fundamental questions about our role within the natural order and the use of these technologies in shaping the human future. So CRISPR-Cas9, um, which was adopted from an immune system um, deployed by bacteria to protect themselves against virus. It's been described as a genetic scalpel or molecular scissors, but it's really more rightly compared to a Swiss Army knife. It's composed of two, because it's so versatile, it's composed of two basic elements, a guide RNA that gets you to a specific sequence in the DNA molecule, and an endonucleus, which is a fancy name for, for an enzyme that cuts the DNA. But that particular um, function can be altered, not just to cut, but to add new sequences and a variety of other ways. As scientists continue to explore the natural system's many, many variations, and the bacteria have many different variations of this, they are learning to, to devise um, New, new modifications in this basic um, molecular operation. So they're producing a whole new genetic toolkit with functional applications at every, 
every level of genomic process, all the way from the DNA to the RNA and so forth. So it's a hugely flexible new tool. And that's just a schema of how it attaches to the DNA molecule. The breadth and flexibility and precision of these new tools is opening a vast increase in the range and complexity of experimental possibilities, theoretical insights, and practical applications. So what can we do with it? That statement was from Jennifer Doudna, who recently got the Nobel Prize for this. Um, so what can we do with it? Well, we can make more nutritious uh, fruit, uh, more rapidly growing fruit, uh, more drought-resistant fruit. We can create... Um, we can create um, new plants that are more efficient in their photosynthesis and for biofuels. We can create um, modified plants that can produce kilogram quantities of pharmaceuticals that would otherwise be very expensive. We can engineer animals to produce organs that are transplantable without rejection into human beings. But most significantly are the research possibilities. Individual genes can be strategically disrupted or selectively altered to the precision of a single base pair to study their role in health, in development, and in disease, or to produce um, stem cells that are specifically tooled to, to reject the immune, immune, to avoid immune rejection, and therefore suitable for universal transplantation. So you can see they're just studying development, new tools of therapeutic intervention, together with deepening knowledge of genomics, is, is rapidly expanding with the sequencing of the human genome, our exponential increase in, in, in um, sequencing human genomes. There have now been millions of full human genomes sequenced, and pretty soon it'll be probably most everybody in the developed world will be sequenced. So together with those transformations, the, the venture capital money is pouring in billions of dollars, um, private companies seeking to, to explore and exploit its medical and its commercial applications. So the scope and versatility of this technology promises transformational impact as great as earlier discoveries of electricity, synthetic chemistry, and nuclear physics. This is what's happening in your generation. This is the big new technology of your generation. While much of this advance will be welcome as controlled disruption, that's a term du jour in, in um, Silicon Valley, constructive disruption, in other words, providing urgent and uncontroversial progress in biomedical science, agriculture, and environmental ecology, the power and depth of operation of these new tools delivering previously unimagined possibilities for reworking or redeploying natural biological processes, some with startling and disquieting implications. So already scientists, so read that quote from Jennifer again. So already scientists have produced um, mice that glow in the dark, and here's somebody's art project, a bunny that glows in the dark. And recently, scientists made an albino lizard. And so some of it's just weird. Um, 
and it, these, these projects have some research value and they don't appear to hurt the animal. But now we may be able to actually program in new behaviors into animals or alter natural mating barriers, creating entirely new hybrid species or modify developmental programs to allow the production of creatures with unnatural anatomical features or body proportions. Um, I think it's very possible that by the time you have children or at least have grandchildren, you may take them to the recombinant zoo and see creatures that no previous generations ever saw. Uh, that's pretty realistic, actually. Um, so, weird world we're entering into. Um, but nowhere is this new technology more fraught with ethical challenges than its potential over human life. Beyond the prospects mentioned above, there are already proposals by serious and well-respected scientists for projects of human-animal chimeras. Um, you know, that's a mixing of different species with human, the human species. Um, that, by the way, is, is just a drawing, so don't worry. We're not quite there yet. But we might get there in some way or another. So this, if you, if you, don't th if you think people wouldn't do this, just think back to the, to the old Soviet Union, or think to today in, in China, scientists have put human genes into monkeys to make them smarter. It really did alter some dimensions of their cognitive functioning. In um, 100 years ago, scientists in the Soviet Union um, tried to make the human Z. So Joseph Stalin ordered animal breeding scientist Ilya Ivanov to create human-chimpanzee hybrids, human Zs, and he said, I want a new invincible human being insensitive to pain, resistant and indifferent about the quality of food they eat. Boy, I just think what they'd do in Ukraine if they had those soldiers. Um, Anyway, that's, that was fantasy land. It's not, it's not the way it's going to work. But, um, but nonetheless, serious scientists have called for de-extinctioning human ancestral species. We now have the genomes for Neanderthals and Denisovans, and some people are talking seriously about figuring out how to bring them back into existence. And, of course, you know the woolly mammoth is it, efforts by George Church at Harvard. Um, Moreover, there are serious considerations of what we might have to do if we're actually going to venture into space. It's going to be a lot harder than people realize, I can assure you. But um, they're talking about actually altering genetics so that people can survive in space better. And then there, there are even, uh, even suggestions that we might want to produce smaller human beings, downsize ourselves so we don't use so much in the way of resources, and this could save the Earth. And one college campus could accommodate five times as many students, maybe. I'm sure this is a joke, but it's still, it still um, leads you to ask some fundamental weird questions. At the same time, there are very serious efforts to alter our genetics to, to produce something that approaches immortality. And you may know that uh, Google has something called the Calico Institute, California Life, Life Company, which is they have a billion dollars invested in, in longevity extension programs and guided evolution. More and more there's talk about intervening in our species to, to, to sort of promote a certain direction for human, the human future. And this, this idea of guided evolution includes the transhumanists. In fact, that's the sort of general term now for these kinds of attitudes and, and projects. 
Transhumanists are actually an official international intellectual and cultural movement advocating technologically mediated enhancement of human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. I've had several of these uh, leaders of the Stan Stanford Transhumanist Society in my classes. They're intelligent and serious-minded students. They view our current species form as an evolutionary stepping stone and believe it's human nature and human destiny to improve ourselves. They argue that our advancing technologies offer us the opportunity to escape the constraints and cruelties of an amoral evolutionary process, to lift humanity to the next level of personal and social flourishing as genetically enhanced human-machine hybrid post-humans, techno-sapiens, some of them call them. And their, their uh, logo is H+, improved humanity. So these ideas have been promulgating, promulgated in the extremely popular books of Yuval Noah Harari. How many of you read books by Harari, Sapiens and Homo, Homo Deus? Okay, as I'm sure you realize they're, they're gracefully and thoughtfully written at a certain level, but uh, to put it mildly, I think sometimes he gets a little out of his depth when speaking about matters of science. And I actually think those books are very misleading. I'd like to debate Harari um, because I think he has it quite wrong, actually, both ideologically and scientifically. But having said that, um, there it is. So he thinks human beings will upgrade ourselves into a, another kind of being within a couple centuries. I was just telling the guy I had conversation with an hour ago that that I think will be pretty much the same species we are right now in 200 years. Um, because we'll start to appreciate who we are um, and realize that the kind of alterations and specializations that some people would design us to have will actually take us over the top and down the other side. That's what other species are, by the way. They're, they are specialized. Plato, if you go to the Timaeus, Plato had the whole idea that the other species were actually subtracted from the optimal fullness of being, which is a human being, um, on earthly creatures, talking about, of course. Um, so I think Harari has it wrong. Um, and, and yet, a lot of people are taken by his vision. But putting aside these, putting aside these speculative prospects and hyperbolic projections and turning to more immediate and practical concerns, it's clear that there are many considerations in the wise use of these new powers, commercial, social, legal. Uh, all of these are extremely important. But since I'm a physician, I want to speak to you today about their direct application to human life in medical research and in clinical care and also in beyond therapy interventions in the pursuit of happiness and human perfection. So there's Jennifer again. We may be nearing the end of genetic diseases. Wow, what a statement. What a moment in human history. For the first time in our long and troubled species history, the tools appear to be in place for the conquest of diseases that have burdened our species since the dawn of time. So Jennifer, I'll tell you quite a bit more about Jennifer because Jennifer and I op, uh, organized a series of four meetings um, for four years, meetings that would address the social 
Athakoshi Sayatinor very well, a very interesting person um, and thoughtful and good. Not particularly um, acute when it comes to thinking ethically, but she's very aware of where the science would go to us. In case I don't remember to tell you this later, at one point we'd been having a two-hour planning meeting of what we were going to do with our next conference. And as as we stood up to leave, she said, you know, Bill, um, sometimes I lay lay awake at night uh, thinking to myself, are we going to use these tools to turn the whole world into one big GMO? You know, you get the point, we're going to take away the natural dynamics and domesticate the whole world. It would be a much impoverished world if we did that. And she understands that. So, um, but she also feels the compelling need, and she told me that she gets several emails or letters a day from parents desperate to have interventions against their children's uh, genetic diseases. So she knows the importance and the power of this. So um, what, what are we going to do with it? Well, already scientists have made dramatic gene editing advances in mouse models of a wide range of disorders, including sickle cell anemia, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and Fanconi's anemia, to name a few. And let me just show you how this works. Um, so there are already clinical trials, and there's one very successful clinical trial uh, on sickle cell anemia. And now I'll take, t- tell you how to, this is done. So if you look at this, this is a blood smear. And you can see that there's, there's some cells that are sickle-shaped. And what happens is, um, you probably all know the story from high school biology, that if you're heterozygous for the sickle cell trait, and you live in places where there's malaria, you have a certain um, immunity to the effects of this because something about that conditions your red blood cells to resist the malaria parasite. But if you have two copies, one from each parent, then you're homozygous, remember those terms? And that means you have the potential for the disease. And what happens in the disease is if you get, most of the time you're okay, but if you get in an environment where you're a little stressed for oxygen levels. Um, COVID would really do it to a patient, but even just infections or various events, they sometimes get this, this effect where, where they, they are not getting quite enough oxygen into the, into the blood. And when that happens, the cells sickle. And when the cells sickle, instead of flowing through the, the little capillary vessels, the way normal biconcave, smooth red blood cells do. That's what they normally look like. The sickles clump up and they get blocks the, the small vessel. And then you get the pain that comes with not getting the oxygen to the tissues around. And when I was a medical student at Stanford, I took care of a little boy who was in for his 200th hospitalization. He was only 11 years old and he was in a lot of pain. So this would be a wonderful thing if we could cure this. And the way they do it is they mobilize the hematopoietic stem cells, the blood-forming stem cells, out of the marrow into the bloodstream. They then take them out, you know, by taking a needle full of blood. They culture them in a dish and alter the genetics, and then they put them back in. And it doesn't take very many. Just a couple of these basic kinds of cells will repopulate the entire bone marrow and, and produce the right kind of cells. So that's, that's a pretty quick... Um, 
discussion of what happens, but that's the goal. And so you can imagine there are many, many diseases we'd like to be able to do this. Not all of them is it easy to take the tissues out, the cells out of the body, but for hard to reach or fragile organs, they can even send this CRISPR mechanism in with specially designed um, viruses or nanoparticles or targeted little liposomes, which are little fat globules that go right to a, to a cell type and detect the receptors on the cell type. They even get these into special regions of the brain. So this is really gonna be a fantastic technology for intervening in, in disease. And, and so you can imagine how many things there might be helpful for. There are at, at least 10,000 single gene um, genetic disorders and probably tens of thousands more that we haven't kind of figured out yet. And 95% of those have, not only do they not have a cure, they don't even have treatments for 95% of them. So this, a little, this little fellow has something called Miller's syndrome. And by the way, most genetic diseases manifest as syndromes. And I'll tell you why that is. Syndrome means that there's quite a few, it's like a constellation of, of, of uh, adverse effects on the patient. Um, this little fellow, he's got something wrong with his face and with his fingers and probably some cardiac abnormalities, maybe some cognitive deficits, and so forth. So this is a developmental disorder caused by a single gene dis dysfunction. This, this poor little fellow has something called, called um, Kreutzfeld, um, no, this is called, um, I have this connection with that. Um, I'll think of what this is in a minute. But anyway, this is a metabolic disease where, where the little, little kid chews his fingers off. So this is called Lesch-Nyhan's disease. And normal cognition, but he just can't help but the, they also chew their lips off. So you can see right away, if we could intervene in this, it'd be a wonderful thing. But that, of course, raises the profound question of, of what constitutes a disease and at what level would we want to be willing to intervene? So you guys know what this is. This is albinism. That's people with albinism can live pretty normal lives. They're a little sensitive to uh, sunlight. They get cancer and stuff, but there's a little stigma associated with this, but otherwise they're pretty normal. And so is that something you'd intervene in? And at what level of risk would you take to do it if you would? Or what about dyslexia, which affects 15% of the of the population, I would guess that there's somebody, one or two people in this room that have dyslexia. And, and dyslexia is probably a human variation, not in any way, can, should not be considered a, a pathology. And, and, you know, some very, very significant contributions to our society have been done by people with dyslexia. For example, Charles Schwab, who set up the Schwab Brokerage Company, is a Stanford grad, and he has dyslexia fairly, fairly bad. He makes the point that why did we ever push students to do things fast? Dyslexics just do them more slow, but slowly, but more comprehensively. It's a different shape of mind, if you will. But, you know, in a society where it's a disadvantage to have dyslexia, and it is, um, now, now there's more accommodation to, to kids with dyslexia. But before it was un even unrecognized, and many, many smart people didn't get into 
the colleges or opportunities they wanted because they weren't fast enough. Well, what a silly thing. Um, by the way, uh, Charles Branson started Virgin Atlantic, had, had, um, has dyslexia. One of my friends at Stanford runs the Human Genome Technology Center. He's, he's been nominated for a Nobel Prize. He, he tells me he can't read enough to get through a scientific paper, but he can hear, he can listen, he can remember. And he says, I can see th uh, biochemicals in three dimensions better than anybody I know. So we got to really understand what human variation is. And it's especially dangerous when there are pressures and conformities and ideals that involve genetics. So are we going to let parents decide, well, we give them these so-called reproductive rights, what kind of quality controls over the children might they go after? Well, this brings up the very important point of what could parents do if they really wanted to do something? Well, it turns out it's not that easy because there's two principles. If you learn nothing else from me tonight, learn these two, uh, these two terms, pleiotropy and polygenic inheritance. Pleiotropy means that any given gene affects many traits. So um, you can imagine genes produce proteins and there's not a direct translation of proteins to traits as general rule. They, they can make it so a trait doesn't express, but they're just one of a whole constellation of proteins that are interact together to make that trait. So all, most every gene affects many traits and most traits are affected by many genes. That means it's extremely difficult to, to do any real alteration. And it's, the analogy would be paints on, a, on an artist's palette. The artist puts down the primary colors on the palette and then he mixes them before they're actually translated, if you will, into the traits of a, the body there. And that means that anything we really care about, like beauty, longevity, intelligence, to name a few, th those kind of things are controlled by at least dozens of genes, usually hundreds, maybe thousands of genes interacting together. So designer babies, uh, we might be able to produce eye color or little change in stature, but most genes have effects of one to 2% on those kind of traits. You'd have to change hundreds of genes, which might be possible, but quite risky. So the point is that designer babies are not right over the, over the horizon. And, and which is why I say, I think we're gonna be pretty similar to the way we are in 200 years. So even though people have images of creating more intelligent children and so forth, I don't think that's gonna work out very easily. Besides that, involve a lot of embryo experimentation and a lot of some risk to the, to the kids. So there are some things we could give you, like for example, red hair used to be thought to be one gene. Now it looks like it's a few, but we probably could get you red hair if you really want a red haired baby. And a while back, I. I saw this picture and added it into my, my uh, slides here because I thought this picture of these little kids from Nepal, they're so beautiful and they're naturally given community and their diversity of little types and what a, what a richness of humanity that is. Um, but people have their ideals and their aspirations for their children and we'll see where that goes. So having said that, there may be some things that 
one could argue for putting in, this is George Church at Harvard. George was part of the project I did with Jennifer. I know George pretty well, a very interesting guy um, and a controversial person. But he's, he's come up with a list of what he calls rare protective variants of large impact, um, which exists naturally, but only in a few people. And he thinks if we put these into all people, we would be a, a better species. And he's suggesting we may want to do this at some point. So what, are these, what do these do? Well, they give extra strong bones, um, less sensitivity to pain, more resistant virus, low odor. I don't know what that one's about. It, maybe it's something somebody would want. Um, you can see there are things that people care about, and there's just single gene differences. Whether, whether it would interact with other genes and work out, I'm not so sure. But in any case, he advocates for this. But Stuart Newman, another very thoughtful developmental biologist, says, oh, wait a minute, it's not as simple as that. You open the door um, for these children, and you're, you're actually picking and choosing between characteristics and also... Um, how much risk you're willing to take, because nothing comes in medicine without some risk. But beyond that, the whole definition of normal and desirable is at stake. As, now, it's obviously true that the genetic diseases I showed you are serious. Everybody would agree they're diseases. But on the edges, there are these strange socially defined diseases. Does anybody know what, quote, disease this person has? You ever seen this picture before? Do you, you see the, the scars on the back of that man? That's the, this, uh, was a, this was a disease category in the medical textbooks of the antebellum South. And it was called drapetomania. Give it some Greek words and it sounds very real and official, doesn't it? Drapetomania. And it essentially translates to a passion or mania to run away. So a compulsion to run away. And of course, the treatment was whipping. And, and African skin tends to scar with heavy scars called keloids. And that's what you're seeing on the back of this poor man. So that was a socially defined disease and, and not a disease at all, a, social, a, a, a sick social interpretation. And of course, we know of the others, some of the others, they're going on all the time in human societies, but um, the Nazis to, to do something truly horrible. So. So that, that brings us to a very weird question about what would we do if we could do such things? And, and that's a really, really complicated matter. Um, and what would, how would we define it and, and how would we govern it socially? So um, the traditional role of medicine has been to cure disease and alleviate suffering, to restore the patient and sustain the patient in a more natural level of functioning and well-being. The medical arts were in the service of a wider reverence and respect for the order of nature, um, order of the natural world. So this was put succinctly by the second century Roman physician Galen. The physician is only nature subsistent. But now, and now I'm talking about the, the social attitudes in the world we're part of. Now, with the powers of our advancing biotechnology, there's a new paradigm and slowly make its way into medicine. One of liberation, technological transformation in the quest for happiness and human perfection. 
Grounded in the widespread practice and general acceptance of cosmetic surgery, slowly but steadily, the scope and purpose of medicine are being extended along the gradient of our appetites and ambitions to encompass dimensions of life not previously considered matters of health, but natural human variation and limitation. So from Rogaine, do you know guys know what Rogaine is? You're too young to know this. Um, it's not, not moving. So this is, this is an ad from quite a long time ago, 20 years ago for Rogaine. At first it came through the benevolent offices of the medical profession that gave it a kind of a medical seriousness. Now you can buy it at Costco over the counter. So Rogaine, you rub it on your scalp and you do, it makes hair grow a little bit. So when I, was a, when I was a medical student, male pattern baldness was not considered a disease. It was a natural human variation. But the commercial interest turned it into a kind of a, a stigma, stigmatized. I mean, there was people didn't want to be bald as a general rule when I was growing up, but they accepted it as part of reality. But now it's a treatable condition, see, and now therefore a disorder. And it says, if you're concerned about hair loss, see your doctor. Well, now you don't have to, you go to Costco. But in the small print below, it says, um, if you're losing your hair, you no longer have a reason to lose hope. Ponder that. It's such seductive and sick advertising. Because now you make people feel, and look at that ad, it means waning of his youth on the windswept beach late autumn. It's just set up to make you feel despairing about the natural process of your body. And of course, we've intervened in many levels. Growth hormone for people who are short, um, the pill, Viagra, lots of things. Ways people want to have the kind of lives that they want to live and they want their children to have those. So based on this idea of cosmetic surgery, slowly but steadily, the scope and purpose of medicine are being extended along the gradient of our appetites and ambitions. I said that but once before, but get it thoroughly understood because it's the push in medicine right now. It's increasingly, the, we are altering our natural relationship with the world and in our own bodies. Increasingly, we've come to expect from medicine, not just freedom from disease, but freedom from distress, struggle, and even the constraints of a natural life process, from all that's unattractive, imperfect, or just inconvenient. Moreover, together with a general trend to regard life's challenges as bioengineering problems, there is, at least in the culture of Silicon Valley, a fashionable fascination with ideas of biofluidity, that's interchangeable parts and fluid identities, and an almost religious commitment to utopian ideas of technological transcendence. We're turning to our biotechnology to fulfill the, the, the sort of yawning despair and the positive aspirations that would previously be considered spiritual matters. So acknowledging this strangeness of the moment and the seriousness of it, that there are actually tools coming in to try to build better brains and do this, and it, not yet, but they, they will come. Um, the, and the aspirations that people have for what medicine should be able to deliver to them, apart from just therapeutic healing, um, 
This is a very serious science, William Hazeltine. The real goal is to keep people alive forever. How about that? So it's, it's coming. It, we're in this biotech world. You're not going to escape it. You have to contend with it. It's no longer just science fiction. And it's very information-based. And to my mind, it's very cold. It's very clinical and very much to be something to be concerned about in this side of it. The, the positive side of it, of course, is the wonderful healing that these tools can bring against terrible diseases. But realizing, recognizing the challenge of this, um, there is both within the general public and the scientific community growing apprehension that earlier speculations regarding designer babies and state-sponsored eugenics program may now, with CRISPR-Cas9, be at least to some degree technically feasible and thus matters of serious practical concern. Even if they don't work, there will be trials to make them work. That's the problem. So recognizing this, Jennifer Doudna um, organized a group of scientists and in 2015 to try and talk about this. And they issued a statement published in Science Magazine, the leading American scientific journal, that's, that cited an urgent need for open discussions of the merits and risks of human, human genome modification and calling for an international discussion of these matters. And of course, a central concern was germline therapy. You understand germline means transmissible between individuals in the lineage um, to their ancestors. So that would be quite a different thing than intervening in any given individual for that individual's benefit. So they organized this, uh, this first international conference and in 2015, uh, backwards, um, and, and afterwards they, they made a whole bunch of statements about, uh, about human gene editing but before the conference could even take place, they, the Chinese announced that they genetically modified human embryos, albeit human embryos that for physical, physiological reasons couldn't grow very far. And therefore they said that it wasn't a violation of dignity. Um, and that's the way things stood. They, had, they held this big conference, 2015, and, and um, afterwards they issued statements calling for um, um, saying it would be irresponsible to proceed with any clinical use of germline editing until issues of safety, ethics, and social consensus had been adequately explored, but they didn't give any details or even programs to how to do this. And in making the recommendations for the way forward, it's clear that the committee recognized the extraordinary opportunity of our gene editing tools for advancing our understanding of early human development and the origins of disease. Um, and th th they're right about that from a purely scientific standpoint. But it was very interesting because they made no mention of the ethical issues in the instrumental use of human embryos in scientific research, even though that was not a resolved issue. They just assumed it would be okay. So um, that's the way things stood. And in the succeeding years, Jennifer Dowden and I organized these meetings to try to advance these discussions. And because I really do believe, and Jennifer does too, that these are issues not just for elite scientists or academics, but for the whole human family. And we were trying to get that out and make that happen. A very, very difficult thing to do. Um, anyway, that's the way things stood. And it bubbled along like that for a few more years.
until uh, came time for the second international summit on human genome modification. And that was scheduled for, for Hong Kong in, in um, late, late um, 2018. In the meantime, one of the, one of the scientists, a young fellow from China that had come to one of our first meetings, he wasn't originally invited, but Jennifer wrote me and said, we only have one Chinese scientist at our first meeting since January, 2017. And there's this young guy coming through China and, and uh, what do you say we invite him also and he can give a 10 minute presentation of his work. So I said, sure, and, and he came and he was a nice fellow spoke enough English that I could talk with him. And he and I spent a few minutes talking. I was one of the conveners, so I had to deal with all our guests, but I got to know him a little bit. And three months later, he wrote me and said, I'm coming through California. Can I come down to Stanford and talk with you? And I said, sure. Um, his name is He John Kui, and, but everybody called him JK. So JK came down, we, we arranged to have lunch at the student union and, and sat out in a beautiful, late spring day in, in California weather. And I thought I'd, I'd be, 50, be half an hour, 45 minutes, get back to my office and do some work. I didn't have anything scheduled. I started talking with this guy. And it was just amazing talking with him, hearing what was going on in his labs and in China. And I, I remember one of the first things he said to me was, so you were on the president's council. What was the big argument about embryo research? That's just a little fringe of fanatical people in America, right? I said, no, JK, it's roughly half the population opposes research on human embryos. And I remember he, he, he put his hand up like this and he put his fingers together and he said, how can something that small be as important as my two-year-old? And if my two-year-old was sick, I'd like this science to have been done. How can something that small be as important as my two-year-old? And I said to him, well, JK, um, your two-year-old was once that small. And it startled him. Anyway, he and I had a very nice conversation. I ended up spending three or four hours with him that afternoon. He came back several times and talked with me at great length. And when the Hong Kong summit was set up for the end of 2018, he and I were in good conversation and he invited me to come after the, after he spoke at the meeting in the last day. And, and um, he was gonna give a 10 minute presentation. And when it was over, he, he said, come on out with me to Shenzhen. And, and have dinner and meet my family. And I was really looking forward to this. Shenzhen, by the way, is, is a, 40 years ago, it was a little fishing village in China. Now it's 20 million people on the most pedal to the metal kind of scientific development you can imagine. There's, there's a term called Shenzhen speed. And that is these young guys like JK, just absolutely driven, 100 hour a week working kind of guys trying to make a name for themselves and establish things. And by the way, every time he came to Stanford, I bought him, I bought him his lunch because I thought, poor guys, you know, got a s academic salary, must be very struggling in China. I found out later that he had $50 million of personal ownership in companies he set up. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so he came in October, 2018 and, and, um, something was different about our conversation. And eventually he said, you know, I got a really important paper coming out in January. And, and um, I said to him, JK, you didn't implant embryos, did you? 
He wouldn't tell me anything about it. I kept trying to sneak in from the sides and I couldn't figure it out. And, but I was very suspicious and even warned a few people it might be coming, but I didn't know. And that's the way it stood. And then a month later, I was on my way to Hong Kong. On my way through the airport, I got a call from Antonio Regalado at MIT Tech Review. And he said, what do you know about JK? And I said, what do you know about JK? Why are you calling me? And he said, I think JK has implanted human embryos, and I think they've been born. And I said, oh my gosh, um, that's what I was worrying about. So I, I bought the Wi-Fi going across the Pacific. I never buy the Wi-Fi, it never works. <laughs> and it didn't work the whole way across the Pacific <laughs> until an hour out of Hong Kong, suddenly it went on and every newspaper in the world, the headline was twin girls born in China with germline genetic editing. And by the time I got to the conference center, it, there was just like, it was like a storm. I mean, nobody was talking about anything else. On the second day, when JK was supposed to talk for 10 minutes, they gave him an hour and a half. And he came in with an armed guard. By then he was getting death threats from all over the world. And 90% of his emails were negative. And they brought him in. By that time, science, um, Journalists had flown in from every place in the world. They cordoned off a third of the thousand person auditorium at Hong Kong Medical Center. And there were cameras with lenses along as a cannon. And, and it was just like a scene. I, I, he came in, the, the cameras started clicking. It was so loud that the moderator had to step forward and say, no more pictures. We can't hear him. And then there was a silence that was like, I don't know, the deepest silence I think I've ever heard because everybody knew, everybody in that auditorium knew we were at the epicenter of the human story for that, at least that week's version of it. We were at a hinge of history. No creature had ever been able to change its evolution this way. And here we were with this new power. What did it mean? Why had he done it? Where was it going to take us? It was really, really amazing moment. And there's a picture of JK when he was giving his presentation. He was very poised, but he was unconvincing. People immediately criticized him. He got a huge amount of a very, very heavy opprobrium for this. And um, there he is at an earlier, when he came through Stanford, that's in my dining room. What he did was he modified a gene that makes it hard for the HIV AIDS virus to get into cells. And he did this for a very good reason in his mind, because people in China with HIV are stigmatized, can't even get, get uh, employment or really proper health care. So um, I knew JK was interested in all this. And even I sent him this issue on designer babies and he, he kind of thought, oh, that's really interesting. They're very open to this idea. But basically he really believed that this should only be used for for therapies, but he was very gung-ho on that. And I can see why, because there's such terrible burden of genetic diseases. All right, so that was what happened. And of course, I didn't end up having dinner with him. And it was a big, big scene. And so then I went home, and a few days later, JK emailed me and said, can we talk? And so over the next six weeks, we had a whole series of very long three-hour, two, three-hour conversations. He told me everything about his project. And at one point, he mentioned that he'd gotten this email from a fertility clinic in Dubai that said they wanted to learn his technique. 
And see, this is very fraught with significance because it means that just like with stem cells, there are going to be, you know, offshore stem cell clinics. There's going to be commercial interest in using this, sort of luring patients by promising better babies. And it's very, very significant and dangerous, this kind of stuff. Because not only does it affect the family and the baby, but future generations that come through that lineage. So I want to just take a minute and show you. I'm going to just show you like two minutes of this. But this is an advertisement for, for a fertility clinic in New York City that JK was working with this guy. And, and they, were, they had plans to, to, to do this kind of... Um, Sorry, to do this kind of commercial operation. And um, this gives you a, a flavor of what the world is. I think the world is going to come to this in some, some places. You got to read the small print if you can. I'll read it out. The hope of the family is in the child. The future of the nation is in its youth. It starts with genes to ensure that every baby born in the world is an angel without regret. In reproductive medicine and genetic research, America leads the world in technology. Mixed wisdom and a multinational enterprise advantages in the field of genetics. Anyway, you get the whole point. Welcome to Mixed Wisdom and NHFC. We are located at the center of New York City, near to the Columbus Circles and the Central Park of West. Using the highest standard possible in the world, we established this center, which occupies 38,000 square feet, which is... That's enough. You get the picture. That's where, that's where it could go. But in the meantime, and I just want to end with a few further comments. In the meantime, the, there are really compelling scientific arguments for doing this stuff. Because if you could alter embryos, you could study the way genes affect early development, and you could make disease models, and you'd understand fundamental living systems. And even diseases that don't manifest themselves until adult life, sometimes affected by the first few days of gestation. So we've been through this as a culture already. In 2001, when I was appointed to the President's Council, the issue was cloning and the controversy was over federal funding of research involving the destruction of human embryos. And it was resolved by studying the cells that existed, but President Bush wouldn't allow any further destruction of embryos because it was against the law, for one thing. But it became a major controversy in our society. This is my alumni magazine, positioning it as a, a battle between religion with private beliefs and science with its virtuous goals. 
But it wasn't that simple. Both sides were defending something of great importance, medical research and the dignity of human life from its early beginnings. And Congress realized this, and earlier when IVF came up, uses of embryos could have studied IVF, but in, you know, in vitro fertilization, you all know what that is, right? So the Dickey-Wicker Amendment was designed to counter the federal funding of this, the argument being that American citizens shouldn't have to cooperate in the destruction of human embryos, instrumental use of hem human embryos, if they didn't, if they felt like there was a moral problem. So I found this, when I, this was very hard controversy while I was on the President's Council. I found this ad from a advocacy for the research, but I thought it could equally apply to the pro-life position. We fight because lives can't wait. So both sides had good goals, but they had to be integrated and, and understood together, uh, not individually. So the pro-life position is that, that human life starts out, this is an eight cell human embryo on the sharp tip of a pin. That's how small it is. But small isn't a, isn't a measure of moral meaning. And, and it contains within itself the, the potential, the inbuilt potential for the full development of a human being. In biology, the whole, as a principle of life within the organism, the whole precedes and produces its parts. So in a, there's a very compelling argument for why early embryos are human beings at the earliest stages of the development. But there are also compelling arguments for, for studying human embryos. And the question is, how is our civilization going to deal with this? Um, since, since ideas like um, moral valuation of embryos are marginalized now as though they're subjective, um, I think you can understand my position on this. I take a traditional Catholic position on this. And so I, I don't want to prejudice any discussion we might have, but I, I struggled very hard with this because I didn't come in with that position firmly in my mind. But the more I talked with my fellow uh, council members, including the Catholic members like Marianne Glendon from Harvard and Robert George from Princeton, the more I realized that the argument from potential or rather active potency, act, active power was compelling. So I came to think we should not do use human embryos instrumentally as raw materials in scientific research, but this is the kind of politics we're up against. And I'm gonna show you this just so that you don't despair about today's politics, because I think in some ways this is worse, but this was a political ad in 2006. Next summer, I'm going on a camping trip with my friends. On my way home, I'll be in a car accident and I'll be paralyzed for the rest of my life. In 20 years, I'll have Alzheimer's. I won't recognize my husband or my kids. Next week, my mommy and dad are going to find out that I have diabetes. This is my congressman. Congressman Don Sherwood. He voted against federal funding for stem cell research. Is he a doctor? Is he a scientist? Why did Congressman Sherwood bet my life that he knows best? Help me. Help me. Who knows? Maybe I'm your mother. Maybe I'm your grandson. Maybe I'm your little girl. How do you know I'm not you? Stem cell research could save lives. Maybe yours or your family's. Someone you love. Only Congressman Sherwood said no. How come he thinks he gets to decide who lives and who dies? Who is he? Majority action is responsible for the content of this advertising. So I'm not sure what happened to poor old Congressman Sherwood, but I'll tell you, I don't think it's a fair ad.
Okay, so here's the problem. Suffering is a very, very compelling moral argument. Everybody knows that. But it's not the only moral principle. And when you use suffering that way as a, as a cudgel, as a Trump argument, then you can justify practically anything because suffering has no bottom. There's, there's physical suffering, there's individual psychological suffering, there's social suffering. And where does it stop? So you need to add in thoughtful considerations, like a thoughtful evaluation of what a human embryo really is, for example. Uh, now, you're going to hear this a lot. If, if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned in June, you're going to immediately be barraged with a bunch of, of advertisements on television and print and the internet, especially showing suffering circumstances where abortion isn't available, back alley abortions and stuff like that. Okay, those are, those are important considerations. We need to take very seriously the suffering of human beings, but it's not the end of the discussion. So regardless of what you feel about that issue, bear in mind that suffering alone does not trump all the rest of the arguments. So I just want to end with four questions to you and concerns that you need to, as the generation that is going to help set the arrow to flight for the whole future of our civilization. You're going to have to contend with these questions. And I, I know what the foundation of it, this, these questions, the, the foundation is because I, we went through them in the President's Council in a way that was very, very hard to resolve. But in those days, the real issue was whether or not we should use so-called spare embryos left over from IVF to get har harvest out embryonic stem cells. But now you can see the uses of human embryos are expanding greatly. And so you need to ask these four questions and you need to think clearly and argue in the dialogue of your culture to help make sure we get started on the right path. And I wanna begin with this, this Chinese saying that those who choose the beginnings of a road also choose its destinations. So your assumptions should be coherent with the practical impact of their significance in their application. So first, will we endorse the use of human embryos for a wide range of studies of fertility and early development? I gave you already reasons why that could be made. You could make a good argument for that scientifically, but is it okay morally? Second, will we allow the actual creation of embryos, not just leftover embryos, specifically for research purposes? This is Rudolf Yenish at MIT. Rudy made the first transgenic mouse he told me that it took him two years with a postdoc, two years, $200,000, and he changed one gene. I had dinner with him just before COVID, and he said he can now, for $2,000 in three weeks, change as many genes as he wants to. That's how powerful the technology is. So would they want to create embryos with altered genes? Yes, to study what the genes do, and for a whole variety of other reasons, toxicology studies and so forth. So how many embryos then is it okay to create if you're gonna create embryos? Well, one Japanese scientist made 581 identical uh, mouse embryos and think how useful identical embryos would be because you could then do standardized change, change. Say you wanted to test the level of a pharmaceutical that doesn't cause damaging effects on the embryo. You just you take identical cloned embryos and you give them different doses or pollutants, environmental pollutants and see what that does. So we would want to make human cloned embryos and we can make human cloned embryos at this point. So 
the, the bottleneck on that is getting the eggs to make the embryos. And right now they're produced by super ovulation of natural functions. By the way, I would strongly medically, not, not even just morally speaking, medically, I would strongly advise you not to, not to uh, be super ovulated for either for scientific projects and purposes to produce eggs or even for, for helping people have, um, have babies like surrogacy because it's, this does not come without risk. And um, it's, the risk is not being addressed properly in the society, not honestly. But there are other ways to get eggs eventually. Um, and one possibility is to use so-called induced pluripotent stem cells or embryonic stem cell lines to grow eggs in culture. And I won't read this whole thing, but if embryos could be grown in culture, they wouldn't be hard to get. And they'd become like any other type of cell line. They would become objects and would be used as objects. Um, maybe we'll read 20 years, 30 years from now that they made 20,000 embryos, studied their development, and we'll get used to it it's, and decide it's okay. Remember Dostoevsky said, man gets used to everything, the beast. So where will we go? Final question. Will we allow research on embryos beyond 14 days? And if so, for how long? And according to what principle of moral evaluation and logic? See, the United Kingdom and a variety of places like China and so forth will allow embryo experimentation up to 14 days. But now we can, for the first time in the last four or five years, we can actually grow embryos longer than 14 days. And scientists are champing at the bit. Is that how you say that little cliche? Chomping at the bit to, to, do, to do this. And there's actually a whole movement to do it. And earlier, my colleague at Stanford was on the California um, board deciding whether or not California should do this. And he said, oh, we, we said 14 days, but we could change that in the future based on understandings we come from neuroscience. Well, what is he talking about? Neuroscience? What, what does that have to do with it? 14 days, neuroscience? Well, the head of the Stanford Bioethics Center said, oh no, it's okay because embryos don't have any sort of nervous system and that doesn't even happen until 26 weeks of gestation. And therefore they can't have any real kind of interests is the legal term. He's totally wrong, by the way, about the 26 weeks. Any of you in science knows that there's 26 weeks is a pretty, pretty far along nervous system. But um, anyway, be, be, be that as it may, there's a huge push now. The International Society for Stem Cell Research has said, suggested revising it to 28 and maybe 40 days with no real upper limit and no reasons for justifying it either, except that science could be done. Well, would anybody do this? Here's a physician named Julian Savalesco, heads a big think tank at Oxford University, you heard of that place? And so he says, this was an earlier statement when he thought you could implant and gestate clones, which we haven't been able to do yet. But if we could do it, he said, we would be morally required to clone and produce embryos and fetuses for the sake of being harvested for cells, tissues, and even organs for therapy, followed by abortion at just the right moment. And I debated this guy at a forum in New York City, and I said to him, well, how far would you think it would be morally acceptable to gestate these cloned embryos in order to get their cells, tissues, or organs? Three months? He said, sure, why not, three months? I said, six months? He said, yes, 
I'd do six months. I stopped asking him at that point. Six months, they're babies in the intensive care unit. Premature babies at six months. So would anybody do this? Well, there's a, there's a company in Silicon Valley that's taking fetal uh, organ primordia from aborted fetuses and trying to get them to be useful as, for transplantation. So Erwin Chargoff was a major, a, a Jewish scientist at Columbia University, but very prescient. And he said, science is, and this was like 1960s, okay, or 70. Science is now the craft of the manipulation, substitution, and deflection of the forces of nature. What I see coming is a gigantic slaughterhouse, an Auschwitz, in which valuable enzymes, hormones, and so on will be extracted instead of gold teeth. Oh my gosh. Um, this, this is a quote from Leo Alexander, who was a Harvard physician, witnessed the Nuremberg trials, that's the trial of the doctors and other people at, at the Nazis. And you may know, if you've never been to the Holocaust Museum exhibit, Deadly Medicine, try to go see it. Um, Leo Alexander witnessed the Nuremberg trials and then was a major person in drafting the Nuremberg Codes, which had to do with human subjects in research and other ways of viewing, using human beings. And he wrote a very compelling essay, which you all ought to read, called Dic Medicine Under Dictatorship. But I'd advise you to not read it in the evening before you're gonna to go to bed. It'll give you nightmares. It is one of the hardest things I've ever read, hardest to take. It's, it's really horrifying what the, what the Nazis, Nazi doctors were willing to do. And you need to know about that. And here's what Leo Alexander said, because there was great complicity, not just a few sick people like Mengele, but the whole medical profession as a, as a general group participated in these Nazi ideas. And what he said was it started from small beginnings. The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in emphasis in the basic attitudes of the physician. And that's what you have to worry about now, that there's, there's a certain subtle change in attitudes. Read the whole essay, you'll really benefit from it. But we're past that. We saw the errors of, of Nazi Germany, not so. Watson and Crick, double helix, remember? Francis Crick said, no newborn, this is a paraphrase from an article, so you may not have said it in exactly these terms, but it was the meaning. No newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to live. And he gave parents the right to dispatch, that means kill, an embryo, fetus, or newborn up to two years of age. So. That's Nazi medicine, that's what we get. What is a madness? To have erroneous perceptions and reason correctly from them. What would the erroneous perceptions be here? Well, for example, that suffering is, to, is the single principle that should guide us. We're at a crucial moment in human history. You guys are gonna make a difference. Your, your, your voice is gonna influence all this. We obviously have incredible opportunities, incredible possibilities like no age before us. It's a little bit like Moses on the mountain. Today I give you a blessing or a curse. These are, these are powers at the very core of life itself. Um, the, sorry, missed a slide. There are people who want to, who, who casually say, yeah, we need to 
stop thinking of our genomes as something special or inviolable. We can do better than mindless evolution. Uh, Kevin Esvell, the young professor at, that's sub-professor, I'm not worried, serious category. I took this off his postdoc website. It's now been removed, by the way. Broadly speaking, we seek to learn enough to rectify a fundamental flaw in our universe. Evolution has no moral compass. Oh, that's quite different than the Christian view of creation. So it's an amazing moment in human history. We need a comprehensive view. We need to realize that when we start messing around with even the smallest thing, everything is hitched to everything else in the universe. And that just is not just physically, but morally. One of the, one of the most interesting moments I had with JK was, mm -hmm. was we were talking about the compelling need for these technologies. And he said, but there's so many people desperate for these technologies. And I said, yeah, JK, but there's something else going on in the natural world. Look at nature, it's so beautiful. It can't just be, you can't just say, well, we've got to intervene. We've got to intervene thoughtfully if we are going to intervene. And I said, like the redwood trees in my backyard, I, I can't even believe it, but I have a grove of redwood trees in my own backyard by a little stream, so beautiful. And I, he, he looked kind of quizzical. I said, JK, have you never seen a redwood tree? And he said, no, never, don't know what it is. So I took him out to, and took him for a walk in a forest out behind my house, these beautiful, huge redwood trees. And he was just, he was just stunned by how beautiful it was. Nature has this mysterious beauty running through it. Are we, really feel like we understand this well enough to alter nature and, and subdue it for our own. You know, it, it says we're keepers and tillers of the garden, yes. But what we do um, in, in the notion of dominating nature is in line with God's purposes, not our own ambitions and disordered desires. So we're at a crucial moment. And there we are back to those hands. There we are, those hands that that are operating on human life. I think we need to keep in mind as we do that, those hands of Christ that were suffered on the cross, nails through those hands. The suffering love that Christ bring, brought us is the principle that must operate at the very foundations of our thinking about these issues. C.S. Lewis once said, we should answer all of our problems with more love, not less love. And if we operate with that, I think we'll have a very constructive way forward. Thank you. So I'm really, really curious. I believe Dr. Who was uh, in prison for uh, doing um, that implantation, right? He was what? He's in prison currently. Isn't he? Oh, yeah. He just got out of prison um, three weeks ago. And I've had two long conversations with him since then. In fact, one of them was on Zoom. So I could see what he looked like. He put on quite a little weight and lost most of his hair. So he needs Rogaine. <laughs> um, yeah, they, you know, here's the tragedy of this. He got a lot of encouragement, both in the United States and in his native country. Chinese were fascinated by what he was doing and, and they encouraged him. They, they, he got money and he all the way up to Beijing. And when the, when the thing was broken, you know, it, it was Antonio Regalado um, cut into the truth of this before JK wanted it known. He wasn't going to say it before the international summit. So it, it, it was 
disclosed in a way that was not to JK's liking. He was going to publish it in January. But even then, it would have caused a lot of stir. But you can imagine that at this international conference, that that everybody had to back off from him to not be associated with this. Because those kind of international conferences, scientists, they get together all the time. They they have the internet now. They they consume. They don't need to meet big venues like, like Hong Kong. That was for the public. That was for the press. And the and the point of those kind of conference is, is, is to say to the world, we know there are serious issues here. We can handle it. We got it. Don't impose your political constraints on us because we're a responsible community. We know these issues are out there and we can handle it. But when JK did this, it was like hiring a skywriter that said, we can't handle it. Mm-hmm. See? And so everybody, including Jennifer Doudna, I think a little ungraciously, everybody piled on him. And, and made him seem like a terrible person. He's not a terrible person. I tell you, he's an idealist. He was naive and he was arrogant about what he was doing, but he thought, well, this kind of thing has happened all the time in human history. Edward Jenner, 200 years ago, just you know, without any institutional review board, inoculated James Pips, I think it was his name, the little fellow with, with horse pox, so see if he could withstand smallpox. Um, Ed, Edward um, Patrick um, Steptoe and, and John Edwards has his name, the two guys invented IVF. They didn't talk to anybody about it. They just did it, pretty much. And so J.K. used them as a model, and he said, I'm just going to do this, and people will appreciate it once it's done. And he had very strong reasons for why I wanted to do it. And I must say they were kind of unfamiliar to me, but they were, at least he had strong reasons. And the parents of the little kids were very, very, very happy about the idea of having babies that would be resistant to HIV because they'd suffered a lot. And so he had his reasons. And it was very unjust what happened to him. And I spent the better part of the next year doing interviews with people places like the New York Times and BBC and, and Wall Street Journal and all these venues to try to at least soften a little bit of this criticism of JK because I was afraid they were going to execute him. This is what they did to the head of the FDA in China when they found that he was embarrassing the country. They executed him. They, what they did was he, he had somehow presided over impure toothpaste coming to Western countries. And, and they tried to say it didn't happen, but then it, there was too much evidence that it had happened. And there may have been a little bribery involved in passing through the customs and stuff. And so they made this uh, head of the FDA in China plead guilty to having taken some low-level bribes. And they said, ah, we'll put you in jail for a year and then let you out. Well, they, as soon as he pleaded guilty, they took him out and executed him. And I was afraid that was going to happen to JK. And if, and if you don't think that sounds realistic, Google up death penalty and you'll see that there were serious people talking about the possibility of being executed. So I, I, I tried to step in and stop this. And I, I have a son who's, who's a Harvard grad who, who um, is now a professor at ASU who was very involved in this pr- process also. He was actually a speaker at the, at the uh, summit in Hong Kong in his own field, which is history of science. And Ben and I both tried to stop this from turning disproportionate. 
but they still put him in jail for two years. And when I talked to him the other day, he said it was so wonderful to see his little children, one of whom was just two and a half when he got imprisoned and is now five and a half. Imagine missing those years. The other was just six months old. So he, he missed the first two years of his little, little child's life. A very sad story, but um, he did the wrong thing for sure. I think that was a long answer, but yeah. Is he, because um, I know the, the twin girls' names and the parents' identities uh, were never revealed to the public um, for privacy reasons and whatnot. Um, is he still in contact? Are they still being observed? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, China, China's chief bioethicist, um, a, a, a guy um, named Qi, um, I, I debated, I, I was invited to speak at the 60th anniversary of of the founding of Renmin University, which is the original communist university in China. And I spoke to the philosophy department and this guy, Renzen Qi was Qi Renzen, they put the last name first. Um, he was the respondent to my talk. And I, I gave a talk that raised these last four questions, fairly similar to what I just talked to you about. And I, I raised these uses of human embryos issues. And when he stood up to respond to me, this guy said, Oh, well, you know, we're, we cooperate because we want to be good international citizens, so we keep the 14-day rule. But, you know, in China, we don't believe that you're a human being. We follow, at, while you're in the womb, we follow the Confucian idea that says you're not a, really a person with moral standing until you're born. And, and, I mean, can you imagine if that were true, what you could do in terms of experiments on fetuses? And by the way, another professor grabbed me as I left the auditorium later and he took me aside and he said, that's not what Confucian says. That's what, what the CCP says, Confucians says. But this guy has now stepped forward and, and asked the government to organize this in a way they can follow these little twins. And there's a third baby too, by the way. And I, I did ask JK about it and he says, yes, they are healthy. They show no signs of any adverse effects. He's not sure if the editing he made actually will keep them from getting HIV because it didn't seem to target quite right, but he thinks it does, will work. But um, they are being followed, yeah. And they should be because we might as well learn from what happened, I think. But of course, it can completely stigmatize their lives too. And JK, by the way, I told you he got very many negative emails but he told me that it started out 90% negative, including some death threats. And over the succeeding three to four weeks, it turned 90% positive. People saying, you know, how can I get this? How can I help my family needs this so much? So we're looking at a big dilemma. And, you know, you, you say you're against it, but then what you're essentially saying is um, you're having to say back to people with families with very, very difficult issues. Sorry, we just can't take the risk. Uh, and they won't agree with you. And I don't think, I think there is gonna be germline genetic intervention sort of tiptoeing in through very severe diseases. I don't really think in the long run we'll be able to stop that. But if we at least raise the issue of, of serious concern about it, maybe, mitigate or moderate some of what happens.
although it's possible we just decide this. JK actually did a huge favor for the world if you look at it that way, because he, he, he raised so much uh, problem that nobody wants to jump in on this again for a while. But it's, you know, think about it. Where do you think we'll be in 200 years? We'll probably have the power to do this and we'll probably have very strong arguments for doing it. I'm wondering, um, sort of on what level you think conversations about these questions, like the morality of um, sort of gene editing should take place and that you think sort of, there's sort of, very kind of technically and scientifically complex questions. And I'm wondering if you think they're best addressed through sort of uh, panels and meetings at, you know, sort of universities of the type that that's sort of you had, or whether they should be addressed through sort of broader like, public discourse type, you know, pundits on CNN. Yeah, boy, that's, you know, when you go to conferences or you have speakers, they always say back to you, that's a really great question. And then the next word is absolutely. Do you just listen? That's almost always what happens in a Q&A. Well, that's a great question and absolutely. So, so I'll, I'll conform. The, how to do this? It's a huge dilemma because, I mean, I, I can barely handle the issues. There's so many scientific, philosophical, theological issues. I don't feel like, like I, I don't want to be the only voice in this conversation. And yet, look what I have. You know, I have a Stanford education. I have decades of experience in this field. I've focused thousands of hours in thinking about these matters. The average person can't do that. And that's why I said earlier, I think the church is extremely important in these matters. Uh, although I have to say it's, you know, the church just stumbles along, you know, let's be, let's be honest about it. The, the church, there's a mystery operating through the church, but because over, they, they, they move slowly, but they, they get, they keep things on track and there's, it's mysterious. But when I went and talked with the head of the Pontifical Academy of Life, I was stunned by how little he knew about this stuff and how little understanding he had and who he was talking to. Some old emeritus professor was giving him most of his advice guy who didn't know much about what was the meaning of it. And, and um, so it's not to be critical. It's just to say that who can do this? I, I don't know. I think it, I think that just to answer your question is I think at many levels and I think academic dialogue is extremely important and the universities will play a major role, but only through organizations like the Thomistic Institute where people can actually examine things with some depth and some some fuller philosophical premises and theological depth. I mean, there, there's a lot of very difficult issues involved in this. And um, I guess that's my, my answer is we just have to do the best we can. But the way I can promise you it'll go badly is if nobody raises any challenges and, and it's ceded to the, to the experts. That's not the answer. Um, I wanted to thank you for uh, your remarks. And so one of the concerns that I have is we live in an increasingly um, teardown culture of the, uh, the biological sex is immutable. And due to gender, it, radical gender ideology, it is 
very pervasive within our culture, um, and the destruction of Title IX. For I, I was born in 1971, and uh, you know, so I, I was raised in the era of Title IX, and we are already seeing sex-selective uh, abortion practices. We are seeing sex-selective uh, assisted re reproductive technology with, with perigenetic implantation. And when you have a culture that is already actively pursuing, uh, and, and this is America and not China or India, where gender side is openly practiced within their cultures for decades. I mean, the unintended consequences of the one-child policy is leaving China right now reeling because they don't have enough adult female caregivers to help take care of their elderly population. Or, or just to add, they don't, they're missing wives for 30 yeah. million males. Yeah, 33 million. They've got 33 million surplus men. So when we have, and many of you are much younger and you're not, you know, just so you know, we, we have um, IVF facilities where that moral line of, well, I can understand, okay, we're going to use, we're going to utilize it and harness it for healing. But when it's being utilized for in the guise of family balancing and you have perfectly healthy, uh, they can now take a single cell out of an eight cell embryo and at day three, that's sent to a clinic in New Hampton, New Jersey, where the clinic then Calls the, the IVF doctor and says, Oh, there, this is, this is a boy or this is a girl. And then, you know, those are then, uh, placed within the, with a uterus in the hopes of implantation for the sake of, of family balancing. And that's eugenics. I mean, we're, we're already at that point where eugenics is being processed and, we better watch out because in 73 with an all-male bench, we said, all right, let's just give the American public Wild West abortion. No guardrails whatsoever. Now we know much more about pain capable because of the power of ultrasound. But where, where are the guardrails going to be to this? Because it's, it's, it's dangerous and it's terrifying, I, I think. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree with you. And, and I think... The, the answers have to be both principled and prudent. So you can't just operate on principles which will sometimes be controversial and not agreed upon. You have to point to consequences as well and say, yeah, but if you start on that path, you need to know where it's going. And if you start accepting instrumental use of human embryos for research, it won't stop at 14 days. It won't stop at 40 days. Why not? I mean, if you really want to know what a gene does, you want to see what it does at the 60th day and the 100th day and right up to birth. And how, how will we stop that if we have no principles? And with regard to reproductive technologies and embryo screening that you mentioned, it's been mostly monogenic diseases like cystic fibrosis and and uh, Tay-Sachs disease and stuff like that that have been happening for the last 30, 40 years. Um, they do that by, by amniocentesis, looking at the cells in the, in the fluid of the pregnancy. Now they've got new tools for taking a blood draw, 
because fetal cells get into the maternal circulation. And you can now do a lot of studies of, of what's going on with the embryo in a virtually non-invasive manner, just a simple blood draw. And that means that there'll be all sorts of search and destroy operations going on that aren't, don't happen now. Not only that, but we started out with monogenic diseases, one gene, easy to check the gene sequence of a single gene. Now with all full genome profiling, we can look not just for individually marked gene diseases, but the full spectrum of coordinated genetics. And slowly but surely, they're putting in the pattern for polygenic inheritance. Like I told you, many traits are caused by many disorders, and so therefore many diseases like heart disease, Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, autism. These are polygenic diseases. We had no handle on them until the last five or six years. Now there are whole clinics producing what they call a polygenic risk score. And parents will take their embryos and they will say, profile these 10 embryos we produced by IVF and tell us which one is gonna have the highest disease likelihood. And, and you can see where that will go. Eventually, if they get enough eggs, they will produce a thousand embryos because sperm is in abundant quantities and they and they'll automate it. And I mean, think what's at stake, a lifetime of, of development and disease. And they'll say, well, it's worth a lot to do this. The wealthy families probably spend $100,000 to get the baby they want. And, and that means huge embryo selection, not just having the baby like the old fashioned way of loving your children. And I, I gotta say, I think it's a terrible mistake. I, 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 I have children and I would, I would not, I, I think the best way to have children is to have them and, and love them and accept what, what God brings you. And I, I think this is terribly dangerous stuff. I mean, it used to be that at five, at five months amniocentesis, couples could find out the sex of the baby they were having. They now have created a blood draw as early as seven weeks gestation. So if you have a, a couple that wants, they, they're, they believe in primogeniture, maybe you've got a, I don't know, you've got a, a, a husband who's like the third generation of a, of a name and, and they want to carry the name down. You know, you don't know what, what goes on within people's lives or people's marriages, but uh, that we have tests right now that as early as seven weeks can determine the sex of a child and, and the kits that line our reproductive aisles that's scary. Yeah, scary I mean, because it's it's selective. That's a. I, I find it a very. I mean, my own feeling is that the the, uh, the whole sexual revolution and the bio biotechnology revolution is actually working against women. And right. and um, I mean, think about it. The way things have moved. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm offending somebody here, but I've looked at this. A, and I'm from California, I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not guiding the wool conservative. I can, I'm conservative where I think there's something worth conserving. And, and the sexual revolution is basically an adolescent male dream. Sex when you want it, 
and no responsibility. And um, marriage is going out of fashion. Marriage is a cultural institution for sure, but it's a one that has very deep roots in biological and spiritual reality. It's, there's marriage in every single culture ever studied. And that means that human beings understand that marriage comes with exclusivity and, and particular rights. And historically, the natural processes of life were what framed and constrained our existence. But now with biotechnology, we can break those frames and we better be a little more thoughtful about where way we're allowing. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is just purely cultural, but wait till biotechnology gets in the mix. We're, we're going to face some very, very difficult choices among people who have no rooting in the, in a, in spiritual um, considerations of the purposes of life. You know, I mean, I, I take, I take every student I've ever taught, at Stanford, I've, I've taken a time to tiptoe into these issues by saying, um, don't think you can outsmart nature. Don't think you can avoid suffering because you never will. Every life has suffering in it, albeit some of it's more physical, some of it is more personal and social, but you won't escape suffering. You better develop a philosophy a life approach, a worldview, if you will, that is, that makes suffering into something more than pain, that makes it into part of your life and a meaning in your life. I've also, by the way, said to them very tactfully, because I'll get, I'll get destroyed if I said it too bluntly, but I basically said this to the students, you know, most people want to have children in their lives, and a lot of people figure it out too late in their lives. You can't just snap your fingers and have a baby at 35 years old. That's not the way nature works. If you want to have children, you got to start thinking realistically about that. And, and that's the contraceptive revolution has made people think you can just have babies on convenience. I would never freeze my eggs if I were a woman. And I, I would seek out a relationship that was an enduring pairing um, and, and a lifelong commitment because um, I mean, people's lives are hard and we have to be understanding of that in our, in our current world. But on the other hand, that's the context in which children flourish and, and, and partners actually flourish best, not the current sexual revolution. And the biotech revolution that's coming is going to raise many, many more problems.